Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, it is, um, it is so true that if we were to think of a simple way to describe what it means to be your people, what it means to be sharers in Jesus the Messiah, we, we could say it is to be people of the truth. Not simply people who know and agree with factual information, but people who are defined by the God who is the truth. The God whose truth is revealed, fully disclosed, fully realized in Jesus the Messiah. And as sharers in him, we are of the truth. And I pray as we consider this person Rahab today and her faith, that we would be challenged, challenged to think again what faith is and the relationship that faith has with the truth, what it is to be a faithful people, what it is to be a people of the truth. So, Father, I pray that you would attend to your people, even as we gather in this place together as a community of believers, we recognize that your saints are gathered throughout the world. And we pray that you would continue to care and for and shelter and nourish, prove out and display before the world the glory of your church, which is the fullness of our Lord who fills all in all. May we be truly worshipers in spirit and truth, not just in this place, but as your people throughout the world, and not just on this day, but in every day, bearing the fragrance of Christ in every place. Father, we give you this time. I pray that you would encourage instruct, exhort, build us up in this most holy faith for the sake of Christ's testimony in his church and in the world. Amen. Now we come today to the case of Rahab and the way in which the writer deals with her faith uh, as I said last time, this, this example that the writer gives is drawn from the same episode uh, as he gave us with respect to the sons of, of Israel, and, so, and that was the fall of Jericho. So I'd like to read these two verses with you. This is Hebrews 
11, uh, verses 30 and 31. We considered verse 30 last time. We'll consider verse 31 today. The writer says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And so as I say, this second example drawn from that same episode uh, takes us back to the same circumstance recorded in the book of Joshua. But it's also a unique example in that Rahab represents the only person in the list of the writer's uh, catalog of faith who was not part of the Abrahamic family. Now you can say, well, what about Abel? What about Enoch? What about Noah? And it's true, certainly with Abel, he died without any offspring, and he was replaced, in a sense, uh, by a, a new son, Seth. But when you consider Enoch and you consider Noah, they were not part, technically, of the Abrahamic covenant family, because that family began with the covenant with Abraham. But they were ancestors of Abraham. Uh, they, they were foundational to that family. But Rahab is unique in the sense that she has no connection with that family, no connection with that people. She's entirely an outsider. And yet the fact that the writer includes her in, her, in his list shows that from his perspective, uh, what is recounted of her in the Joshua narrative, that told him that she had the same kind of faith, faith of the same sort, faith of the same essence, the same type of faith as all of these other individuals that he deals with. Even though she was a Canaanite, even though she had no uh, essential relation with the God of Israel at that time. I said before, as we've been going through the book of James in our Tuesday night study, uh, James' use of Rahab is very important as he deals with this relationship between faith and works. Because she was a person who had no knowledge in the, uh, of the God of Israel in the sense that he had spoken to her or commanded her. She was, uh, her works of faith had nothing to do with uh, the Decalogue or the Law of Moses or, or the Israelite covenant in any sense. God hadn't spoken to her. He hadn't told her anything. Her work of faith was entirely separate from any sort of prescription or definition in that way. And yet the writer very much recognized her faith, both in James and certainly here, as being of the same sort as the Israelite counterparts. And typical of the way that the writer of Hebrews does, he, he kind of captures her faith with a very brief summary statement. As I've said several times, his readers are, Israel, are, are Jewish uh, people who understand Israel's story. They know the story of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. And so he can simply make a brief statement and they can situate what he's saying within a larger context. That may not be so easy for us, although I think in the case of the Rahab story, probably most of us are fairly familiar with it. But he does the same thing here as he did in verse 30 with uh, the, the Israelite army or the Israelite people, which is that he associates her faith 
with its outcome. He treats her faith or approaches it, he affirms it in terms of its outcome. In verse 30, he says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. That was the outcome of the faithfulness of the Israelite procession. Here he says, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish. That is the outcome of her own faith faith and faithfulness. Deliverance that came to her as the fruit of her faith. So the story that he's drawing from takes us back again to Joshua. And and really, there are two parts to this. Uh, There is the first part where Rahab enters the picture in relation to Israelite spies who are sent to spy out the land, and specifically the city of Jericho. And then again, Uh, in chapter 6, when the fall of Jericho actually takes place. So before the Israelites cross the Jordan, while they're still camped on the plains of Moab, at a place called Shittim, you have uh, Joshua send a couple of men into the land, cross the river, and he says, spy out the land, and specifically the city of Jericho. The indication being that he knows they're going to be going there very quickly. So these two spies come and they end up in the city of Jericho and find themselves inside of the house of this woman, Rahab, who is referred to in the places where she's identified as Rahab the harlot. We'll read a little bit of this from Joshua 2. He says, um, go and view the land, especially Jericho. This is verse 1. And they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who've come to you, who've entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know why they were here. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate, they would close the gate at night, that the men departed to leave the city before the gate was shut for the night. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will be able to overtake them. In other words, it hasn't been long since they left. But she had actually brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax. It was harvest time. The flax was laid out to dry in the sun, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them, the men on the roof, Uh, the Israelite spies, and said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. It's interesting that in in writing this account, uh, the writer uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh. She doesn't say, your God, the God of Israel, although that also comes out, but she says, Yahweh has given you the land. And the terror of you has fallen on us, on all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you, because we've heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you 
when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, Sihon, Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, the God of Israel, he is God in heaven and above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by him, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So the men said, our lives Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when Yahweh does give us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then she lets them down by a rope through the window, for her home was up against the city wall. She was living on the wall. And we'll stop with the reading there. But again, these spies, as they're spying out Jericho, they find themselves in her home. And I think there are two reasons for that. I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. But they're Israelites in the city of Jericho. And already the citizens of Jericho are aware of these Israelites who are amassing on the other side of the Jordan. And by her own testimony, they're aware of the fact that they're going to be making an incursion into the land. And at least she has the confidence that God is going to give them the land, which includes that city as well. So the city is hypervigilant. And these spies are in the city checking things out, and they find themselves in her home. And I think the probably a, a likely first reason for that is it provides the best cover. As I said, Jericho is a, was a mercantile city. People came and went. There was lots of trade. It was on a major trade route. You had lots of travelers, lots of foreigners coming and going through the city. And the ancient world was just like the world today. A lot of those travelers, a lot of those merchants, a lot of those foreigners would find themselves seeking out female company while they were staying in the city. And so the most natural thing to the residents of Jericho would be to see foreigners going into a prostitute's home. She would have probably worked her trade out of her own home. And to see foreigners going into her place would not be unusual. It would not be unusual. But I think another reason for picking that place to lodge is that her dwelling was up against the outer city wall. And there was a window out through the wall. There was an egress should they need to escape the city, as they did end up needing to do. So I think it was a very shrewd and a very wise move on their part as they're scoping out the city to take up their lodging in that place. Well, the text tells us somehow someone recognized them as Israelites and concluded that they had come there as spies. And they told the king of the city and he sends his soldiers to go and have them arrested. And and again, Rahab says, well, they went out of the city. They were here. I didn't know who they were, but they're gone. They went out of the city, but shortly enough ago that you should be able to find them if you go and pursue them now. 
Then she goes up to the roof and she says to them, when Yahweh, your God, gives you the city, it's surely coming. Be kind to me and my family. Preserve us in the day of conquest. Well, there's the basic story. There's the basic story. And the writer sees in that episode, because he's drawing from the same text that we're drawing from, he saw in that episode uh, a a truthful uh, um, affirmation of her faith. Again, that she has a fit place in this roll call of faith. And he ties it to the fact of of how she treated the spies. But when you read the account, you see that she was fully convinced that the city was going to fall. And she was convinced not because she knew the size and the strength of the Israelite army, although the fighting men were somewhere around 40,000 men. That was a, a large force. But the city was well fortified, as I said before, a double wall. It had a spring inside of the city, which they tended to do if they could, because then you'd have a water supply in a siege. And that was important. Warfare at that time was commonly done. You see this with the siege on Jerusalem by the Babylonians. They just basically encompassed the city and didn't let anybody come or go, and they just left them in there. And that siege on Jerusalem lasted for two years. And by the time it was done, Jeremiah records the people were drinking their own urine. They were fighting over the afterbirth of babies being born. They were starving to death, disease, famine. And the Babylonians just sat outside and waited until they were so weak that they could now breach the walls and take the city. But Jericho was a fortified city. It had lots of grain store. It was harvest time. They had brought in the grain. They had a spring inside of the city. They had access to water. They could withstand a prolonged siege. And Rahab obviously knew that. So her confidence that the city was going to fall had nothing to do with natural circumstances. But as we saw, even as we read this, her confidence was in Israel's God. And she refers to him as Israel's God. Well, why would she have this confidence? She says, the word of what God did in Egypt, the God of you Israelites, the word has spread throughout the region. Everybody knows about the Red Sea. And everybody knows as well how on your march towards Canaan, God delivered these kings and their domains into your hands as well. The word has gone out far and wide. God has given you all of these triumphs. And I think even more implied in that is that the word had come to them of this determination of God to give the Israelites the whole land of Canaan. You say, well, how would she know that? Well, the Egyptians certainly knew that because that had been revealed through Moses. And again, the word is traveling. These people are coming to Canaan and their God who keeps delivering them and giving them these miraculous triumphs has said that he plans to give his people this land. And so her faith was her resolute confidence in the God of Israel, the one that she had come to believe was the the supreme God. She says, he is the God of heaven and earth. 
And it doesn't mean necessarily that she had become a convinced monotheist in the way that we think about it, but even within a hierarchy of deity or, or, or powers, this is the one who has supreme authority over everything in heaven and earth. And therefore, if he has determined, he has power over the sea. He has power over all of these circumstances to give victory. If he's determined to give this people the land, any land, any place, Whatever he's determined to do, nothing's going to be able to prevent it because he's the supreme God who rules supremely over heaven and earth. So even the way that the writer of Hebrews presents it, she doesn't perish like those who were disobedient. I think the implication there is that the whole city, or at least in, you know, generally speaking, the whole city of Jericho knew the things that Rahab knew. The difference was that she believed them. They were disobedient to the word that had come to them. They didn't think that this God was going to triumph. They didn't think that he was going to give the Israelites the city or the land. She believed the reports. They didn't. They were disobedient to what they had come to know. And her faith was fully shown by her actions, Her actions demonstrated that the things that she said she believed, she truly believed. And this is really the essence of what James is getting at. And again, we've been dealing with this on Tuesday nights. But the relationship between faith and works. All that James is saying is that faith always, faith, the the presence of faith will manifest itself in the appropriate response to what is believed. It's not believe information and also obey. That's not what James is saying. And James isn't saying, oh, you can't earn your way into heaven. It has to be a matter of of salvation by grace through faith. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when he says faith without works is dead, he's saying that when we truly believe something, we will respond accordingly. If we don't, it shows that we don't really hold that conviction fully without any sort of compromise or or corruption or, or imperfection in any sense. So Rahab's faith ended up delivering her and her household. They said, hang this red cord from your window and bring everyone who you want to be saved, your whole family, into this house, into this dwelling, probably one room. And when we take the city, if whoever remains in this room will be delivered. If anyone goes outside of this room, then their blood is on their own hands. It's not our fault. But we pledge to you that whoever is in this room, when we take the city, they will be spared. So her faith ended up delivering her and her family. And the Joshua account records that after that deliverance, and recall from last week, everything that was alive in the city was killed. Only Rahab and her family survived. But the Joshua account says that she joined herself to the Israelite covenant community from that point forward. 
Now, it doesn't say that she necessarily, you know, became a proselyte or whatever, uh, but she joined herself. She became a part of that covenant community in some sense from that point forward. And God himself rewarded her faith by grafting her, a Canaanite woman, grafting her into the line that would yield David and ultimately the Messiah himself. You read this in the genealogy of Jesus in the first chapter of Matthew. We can look at that real quickly. It's just, it's just very brief. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then as you go down through here, he says, uh, verse 5, to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. And then he traces it all the way down to the birth of the Messiah himself. She was actually grafted into the Messianic line. And she's not the only non-Israelite to be grafted into that line. Ruth herself wasn't an Israelite, right? She was a Moabite. But Even so, Moab and Ammon, if you recall, were a part of the wider Abrahamic family. They weren't a part of the covenant community. But Rahab is unique in that she is entirely outside of that whole line of descent. And on top of that, the scripture is careful to present her as an unsavory person. Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot. She's referred to that way over and over again. And she would have even been despised by her own countrymen. Men are willing to use prostitutes, but they don't respect them. They're considered to be low people, right? Despicable people, unclean people. And yet, God saw fit to reveal himself to her. Why her? Don't know. Reveal himself to her and have her be part of the human essence of his beloved son. The human son who embodies all of the fullness of God. The human son who is the full disclosure and embodiment of the living God. That human substance of the son includes a Canaanite harlot. I don't think there could be a more profound glimpse into the Creator's loving, all-encompassing intent for the world. And I don't want to go down this path far, but this was one of the points of stumbling even for Jesus' generation. How can you, in any sense, be what you claim to be when you associate with these unsavory people. 
when you defile yourself with these associations, the people that you go into their home, the people that you let touch you, the people that you show care and compassion for, that argues against who you say you are in their perception. And in all of those interactions that seem to, uh, in a sense, give some approval or some proximity to uncleanness associating with unclean people, Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. When you see me, you see the Father. Rahab the harlot, God was pleased to give her an exalted position in the history of his purposes realized in the Son. And that's an amazing thing. But where I want to conclude today, uh, and this is something that isn't brought out either by the author of Hebrews or directly by uh, James in his treatment of Rahab and her faith, um, but it's interesting because in very many ways what Chris spoke of today speaks to this the thing that I wanted to bring out. And that's how do we understand, how do we deal with this issue of Rahab's lie in the context of her faith? And I don't know if you've thought about that before, but theologians think about that, and ethicists think about that. For centuries, if you read commentators or you read uh, you know, theological treatments, this is something that comes up from time to time. You have a woman who is exalted in the scriptures as this woman of faith. And yet the episode that is pointed to to affirm her faith is an episode that has a lie at the center of it. And there are various ways that this is is looked at, again, but... But I think it's something that is important and has to be dealt with because both Hebrews, the Hebrews writer and, and James in his epistle, associate her faith very much with this protection of the spies. But the centerpiece of that protection, certainly a critical component of it, is this story that she told to the soldiers who came to arrest the men. How do we understand this lie in the context of her faith? And I think it gets especially sticky when, you know, for those who, who look at the Decalogue and the Ninth Commandment and, and, and they see in the Decalogue kind of a, a, the centerpiece of, of God's standard of, of uh, his ethical or moral standard for human beings. Reformed theology puts the Decalogue at the center, right, of God's moral law, that for which men are judged. And the Ninth Commandment pertains to this issue of false witness. In Roman Catholicism, at at least traditionally, uh, because of its place in the Decalogue, this thing of false witness has been regarded as a mortal sin. If you're familiar with the difference in Catholicism between mortal and venial sin. Mortal sin strips you of the grace of life. If you die in a state of mortal sin, you go to hell. 
You don't go to purgatory. Purgatory is where those who are in a state of grace go to finish out their perfection. You die in mortal sin, you go straight to hell. And the remedy for mortal sin is priestly absolution. But this thing of false witness is tied in to that catalog of mortal sin. And so it is a serious issue. On the one hand, you have lying or false witness as something that God forbids that brings moral guilt, brings you under a degree of condemnation. On the other hand, you have this idea of Rahab's faith implicating a lie. The text says you have to see Rahab's actions as an act of faith. On the other hand, the text says that this thing of false witness is a sin and is, in a sense, condemnatory. So how do we deal with this? How do we think about it? Well, I think the most common way that it's handled is to separate her lie from her faith. That's, that's the easiest answer. Well, one way that that's been done is to say faith, her faith pertained to her inward motivations, not her actions. In other words, her faith motivated her to seek to protect the spies, but the circumstances in which she found herself pressed her to have to tell this lie. The lie is separate from the faith, which was this inner compulsion to protect these men. Well, at the most basic level, again, James won't let us separate faith and action. We can't say faith is what you believe, action is what you do. James won't let us do that. And in the case of Rahab, if you look in James chapter 2, James defines her faith in terms of her work, which work is the embrace of the spies and the protection of the spies. And as I said, at the center of that is this thing that we call her lie. Another way to separate her lie from her faith is to use this rationalization of the greater good. And that's probably, in my experience, the most common way this is treated. Yes, Rahab lied. Yes, it was a sin, but she did it to protect someone else. She did it for a good reason. She did it, in a sense, out of deference to the God of Israel. And therefore, even though it was a sinful thing... God is able to contextualize it and, in a sense, temper her guilt. And we tend to play that game in all kinds of ways. I've known people, for instance, who hold to uh, the principle of of keeping the Sabbath. Uh, I, I, I can give one example of a person who found herself on Sunday realizing she hadn't prepared all of the food for her family for that day. And finding herself in this position where she was forced to have to break God's law by preparing food for her family, but hoping 
that the necessity or the rightness or the goodness of feeding her family, God would be able to temper her sin or at least qualified in a way that her guilt would, he, he would be able to, in a sense, not punish her for her guilt. The idea of the greater good. But I think that the, the actual answer which dispels the difficulty comes in considering really how the scripture understands this idea of lying as sin what the scripture is getting at. And, and the, the place to start is the place that we start with every commandment or every moral or ethical imperative or whatever is the recognition that ultimately all of God's prescriptions concern this obligation of love. In that sense, there's really only one obligation. There's not a catalog of commandments. And Paul says that in Romans 13, doesn't he? If you go there and and read that section beginning about verse 8. He says, whatever commandment there is, and he mentions even a few from the Decalogue. Whatever commandment there is, it really has its pleroma, its, its fullness, its substance in the obligation of love. And the Jews understood that. They were not trying to, you know, do a bunch of things to earn their way into heaven. They didn't view the covenant in that way. They understood that the covenant defined their relationship with God as sons to a father. And therefore, even all of the prescriptions of the law of Moses, the covenant at Sinai, all of those things were ways of helping them to understand what it would look like to be defined by love. And so when the lawyer asked Jesus, what is the great commandment of Torah? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said on those commandments, the obligation of vertical and horizontal love, on those things They are the sum of all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets hinge on that, speak of that. And the lawyer, the teacher of Torah, doesn't say, no, you're wrong. There's a whole list of other commandments. He says, you have spoken rightly. They understood that. They understood that. Everything that God commands, everything that he prohibits, positively commands and negatively prohibits, all of those things deal with this human obligation of love. Because man is the image and likeness of God, the God who is love. That's the starting point. And the second thing is, even if we look carefully at the Decalogue commandment itself, because often that's the the focal point. Oh, you know, the, the Decalogue prohibits lying. Rahab lied. That's a sin. That's a violation of the second table of the of the Ten Commandments. If you look at that commandment itself in Exodus 20, this is really how it reads. You shall not testify against your neighbor as a false witness. 
you shall not testify against your neighbor as a false witness. And the central connotation of that has to do with a formal testimony. I'm not saying it's limited to that, but that's kind of the central issue in it. Giving formal testimony. But the point is this. The issue isn't factual accuracy as such. If it's red, say it's red. If it's blue, say it's blue. It's not factual accuracy as such, but what God is dealing with is testimony that harms another unjustly. Testimony, whether written or oral, now in the case of the scriptures, it would have been oral, most likely, but testimony that harms another unjustly. In other words, testimony that violates the law of love, the obligation of love. And that sort of falseness, in terms of the Hebrew concept of it, often in the scriptures has covenantal significance. Why would that be? Well, number one, because again of the implication of love. Number two, this is a prescription within the covenant that God made with Israel. Which covenant defines the brotherhood of the covenant family and the sonship of the covenant community with God, children of a father? And therefore, at the heart of that is this thing of truthfulness as opposed to falseness in terms of covenantal relational dynamics. Think again of the ninth commandment through that lens. You shall not testify against your neighbor in a way that bears false testimony contra your neighbor. You are to love your neighbor as you are to love your God. In Psalm 44, and, and both of these psalms have to do with Israel finding itself in a predicament with God and pleading with him, trusting. In other words, as judgment is coming on them because of their unfaithfulness, they trust that God will remain faithful to his covenant. But this idea of falseness even in terms of the Decalogue, as it pertains to a covenantal significance. Psalm 44, 17 says, all of this, the psalmist says, all of this has come upon us. All of this judgment, all of this calamity, all of this disaster, it has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. We've disobeyed you, we've wandered from you, but we've not forgotten you. In in that sense, we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Psalm 89 even more extensively deals with the same thing with David at the center. God, with all of, this, all of this calamity that's coming on Israel, at the center of it is God's covenant with David. He will establish him. He will establish his kingdom. He will not break covenant with David. Psalm 89, I'll pick this up at verse 30. And we'll hear echoes of this even in the New Testament citations. 
If it, God says, if his sons, David's sons, forsake my Torah, if they do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, from David. And this doesn't mean affection and, and you know, hugs and squeezes. Loving kindness means covenant faithfulness. That's the idea, chesed. I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely, there's the idea, in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not abide, or I will not violate. I will not alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my own holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendant shall endure forever as his throne His throne will be as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. God will keep covenant with David, which ultimately obviously looks to David's own realization in the Messiah. But there are a couple places where you see this idea of falseness as uh, having a covenantal significance, a relational significance falseness as the violation of the obligation of love. And so when we look at it from this perspective, it's easy to see that the ninth commandment or God's prohibition against lying pertains as much to factual truth as factual error. And this is where I think it's very important, even as we instruct our children Because we teach our kids, you shouldn't lie. Lying is a sin. Here it is in the Bible. Don't lie. Lying is wrong. But if we leave it at that, we can very much minimize and even distort what really the issues are. We violate this obligation that God has given to us with the truth as often certainly as adults, as often with the truth, factually correct things as with that which is factually false. What is one of the things that the scripture repeatedly says that God hates? Flattery. Well, if you think about flattery, flattery typically is telling someone something that is true about him or her. It's not lying in the way that we think about it. And even the youngest child who isn't sophisticated, hasn't sorted through all these issues, children, from the time they know how to talk, they instinctively understand this thing called flattery. Mommy, you look so pretty today. What do you want? Right? Flattery is truth speaking. It's it's usually saying something that is true. Man, you're you know you're such a good driver, or you're such a good this, or you're, you know, whatever. Why does God hate it then if it's the truth? 
because it's governed by falseness. The idea of guile. There's an agenda behind it. The falseness isn't in the facts. The falseness is in the human agenda behind it. That's this idea of falseness that God is concerned with. Anytime testimony is employed to the detriment of another or to my own agenda, it's a violation of this obligation of truth-telling. The flatterer's testimony is false because of the guile, the agenda behind it. It's false not because what he says is false, but because he is false. See, we're moving beyond the words that are spoken to what lies behind them. The flatterer bears false testimony contra his neighbor even as he's speaking the truth, because there's a deceptiveness in it. There's an agenda in it. And I think that when we begin to see how God looks at things, you know, and Jesus spoke this way too very often. He didn't say, well, let's see, what you said is factually correct. He understood. This is why often it seemed like he didn't even answer or speak to the thing that people were saying. It's like he's changing the subject. No, he's not. He's moving beyond what's on the surface to what's really in this, what's really behind it, to deal with the truth. Truth isn't about facts per se. Facts can lie, right? This is why when you appear in court, it's not just tell the truth. It's the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. The scripture has this idea of legislating people's consciences. We all know how to use information to create an impression. And everything we're saying is true. But the way that we construct it, the way that we order it, is to achieve a certain effect, which itself is deceptive. Anything spoken or written employed for the detriment toward the detriment of another. This is what the whole Decalogue is about. You know, the thing of stealing isn't just taking your neighbor's whatever and not returning it. You can rob people of their dignity. You can rob people of what they're entitled to as God's image bearers, right? The flatterer bears false testimony against his neighbor, even though what he says is true. And so when we look at things from this perspective, it puts Rahab's lie in an entirely different light. She said things that were not factually true, that is correct, but she spoke out of love for these men and her commitment to their God. Far from having an agenda in it, you say, well, she had this agenda of wanting to be delivered. Well, she was risking her own life. She was risking her own security by the things that she said. She jeopardized her own life to protect the lives of these 
men. And so honor God and honor his purposes, honor his determinations in the world. So we don't have to try to figure out how to separate her lie from her faith. I think that's what James would say if he was standing here with us. Understood rightly, what we call a lie was an act of love that truthfully expressed her faith. Now, I'm not saying that the scripture sanctions misrepresentation, and if it's green, we can say it's blue. I'm not saying that. But simply being factually correct means absolutely nothing in terms of this issue of whether it's sinful or not. Because as I said, most of the time we lie with the truth. Most of the time we bear false witness with the truth. We know how to use information to accomplish what it is that we seek. This issue of truth, as Chris said, is not about factual correctness per se. It's about something conforming to what actually is. And this, I think, helps us to see not just that, okay, I've got to make sure that I'm always dotting the I's and crossing the T's on everything that I say, that it's never the least bit off track in any way, shape, or form. We have to recognize what it means to be truthful, to be people of the truth. We can be factually correct and be false witnesses. People who pervert the truth for the sake of personal agendas, cultural agendas, social agendas, even the greater good. Right after God gives this commandment about false witness, as he continues to flesh out this thing called Israel's Torah at Sinai, here's what he says to them. He says, you shall not bear a false report. Again, the idea of testimony that would indict somebody. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after the multitude in order to pervert justice. In other words, going along with prevailing wisdom or prevailing understanding or what the multitude thinks ought to be done or what will make it easy for you or go well with you, what will take the pressure off of you, What everybody else is saying, what everybody else is doing, what everybody else is believing. You shall test, you, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after the multitude in order to pervert the truth. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Think about that. Being people of the truth means that we bring the same mind of Christ to bear. We don't say, well, he, she's got deep, you know, the corporation has deep pockets. This guy's poor. They can afford to pay him. See, what can look like 
graciousness, what can look like mercy, what can look like kindness, is false testimony. Right? God says, you know, even, and I don't want to, again, get too far off course, but even when we deal with this thing of taxation, the rich paying their fair share, God would say, everybody pays the same percent. The rich don't pay more, the poor don't pay less. Because we uphold the truth. The poor man doesn't get exalted just because he's poor. The rich man doesn't get exalted because he's rich. If we are bearers of the truth, we view everybody the same way. Justice is justice. Justice is blind, right? We don't say, oh, well, you know, your ancestors suffered, so therefore we're going to give you a bunch of money. But we also don't say, you know, we can beat you down and we can exploit you and get rich on you, off of your labors. We don't do that either. So we have to move beyond simply, is everything that I said factually correct, to why do I say what I say? What is my agenda in it? What am I trying to accomplish? Why are the lies the lies? We have to be people who become wise and not simply people who, you know, in some mechanical sense, try to always be factually correct. And if we teach our kids that the issue is that if you ate the cookie, you say you ate the cookie, full stop, end of the issue, then we're not teaching them what it is to be truthful people, people of the truth. Jesus himself is the truth, right? If we're to be truthful people, we're people who bear his fragrance in every place. And that may look like falseness sometimes, but it's not. It may not look like it's what people want to hear or what is the prevailing sentiment, but we have to be people of the truth. Truth livers. Truth livers. Anybody can be factually correct and have a perverse heart. Those who are truth livers will be factually correct. I mean, it's not like you can just say anything that you want. But God is not concerned with mechanics. He's concerned with renewal, a new creation. This idea of integrity. And that is not a cultural thing, it's not an ethnic thing, it's not an Israelite thing. It's a thing of God's renewal according to his purposes in the Messiah. It's a human thing. If we are in Christ, then we ought to be, if someone says, what does it look like to be a Christian, we should be able to say, it looks like being people of the truth. Not people who believe the right information, so that they can seal their future after they die. It looks like people who are walking, breathing, tangible expressions of the truth, the truth as it is in Jesus the Messiah, and all that that entails, all that that implies.
people of the truth. Father, these things are hard for us because we'd much rather just know the rules. We'd much rather just know what we have to do. We'd much rather think that this idea of false witness really comes down to simply being factually correct. It's a lot harder to look behind the statements to our hearts, to our agenda, to what it is that we're really about. Jesus' generation was all about washing their hands and not touching the wrong thing and and some sort of conformity. And he told them what enters into a man doesn't defile him. It's what comes out of him that defiles him. That's where falseness abides. That's where flattery and deception and guile and false speaking, that's where those things lie. Father, may we be people who understand what it is to be people of the truth. May we be committed to being people of the truth. And what that looks like is growing up in all things into the Messiah who is the truth. People who are truly being conformed to the truth of love as he himself is love. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Love seeks the good of the other. May we be those who seek to build up, to encourage, to nurture, to strengthen. And even when we exhort, and even when we rebuke, and even when we find fault, may it be the exertion of love, not the pressing out of our own agendas. Father, I hear all the time, and I'm sure it's true for everyone sitting here today, many people are disgusted with this thing that we call the church because they find in it the same thing that they find in their neighborhood, in their workplace, in their schools. A bunch of self-serving, backbiting people who are trying to climb over the top of each other to get to the place of position or authority or significance that they seek. The guile, the deception, the self-seeking. Father, it ought not to be so. It ought not to be so. Father, help us to be a truthful people. As Chris said, this is where freedom is found. The one who loses what he thinks is his life, the life that puts him at the very center of every thought, every concern, every exercise, the one who loses that life finds his true life the life that is sharing in Jesus the Messiah, who seeks to have his fullness in a new community of people. People who have become image children indeed. Father, make us people of the truth in the inner man, that the world would see that this is not just another religion with another set of marching orders, but it truly is about a new creation, a renewing in the inner man, day by day, unto the fullness of conformity to Christ our Lord. May that be our longing, may that be our goal, may that be our, our labor with one another. Help us in these things. 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.